Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. Welcome one and all to the greatest show in the country, a show that has been hailed one of the finest pieces of entertainment known to man, known to grace the airwaves. That show is... Dream Infringement. I thought we were going to say oh, it at the same time. Okay, let's try it again. And that show is <laughs> Dream, Dream Infringement. Infringement. That's right. Dream Infringement is the show that you are listening to currently. And it is made up of a super squad of three very close friends. Some might say too close. Uh, we enjoy telling stories, playing music over the airwaves on this fine radio station that we have come to know and love by the name of KSKQ. Yeah, we like to uh, uh, tell stories and play songs and toot our own horns um, Yes. every week Yes. at the same time. Yes, and you'll hear a lot of tooting horns on this particular show because as delicate as our... Uh, what would you call it? Egos? As delicate as delicate as our egos are, we also have a very... Um, what, what They're just you? as big. Our yeah. egos are as large as they are delicate and That's fragile. True. Yes, yeah. Uh, and um, I would be remiss if I did not say that we uh, ended uh, quite recently a pledge drive our fall pledge drive, in fact. And it was a very successful pledge drive, so we want to thank all the listeners and um, just supporters of this fine radio station, KSKQ, this community radio station. We just, we want to, our hats, our hats off to you. Thank you so much for the support that you gave us. And, um, and, and our, uh, the ability to, uh, send us money to support KSKQ. That is something that we have not ended. Okay, that's something you can do year-round. And if you would like to do that at any point through the year, just because the spirit moves you. So you can do that by going online and typing in www.kskq.org and you can click on the donate button. Or you can call in at 541-482-3999. So, uh, yeah. So that's something that still still is open to you, still an option. Um, but again, just thank you so much for the support. Yeah, we don't just toot our own horns here. We toot your horns. And you should toot your horn. Toot. Everyone should toot their horn about the things they feel like they do well. Because I feel like sometimes we're all a little hard on ourselves. That's true. Um, but you also shouldn't let anyone toot your own horn <laughs> unless you are um, giving them permission to. That should be... You should toot your horn as little or as much as you feel you would like to. Um, that's something we respect. So, yes, we do sometimes toot a horn on your behalf as the listeners, but we would never presume to think that we could just pick up your horn and toot it. Not not something that we want to do. Uh, here at Dream Infringement, we respect all horns. Um, so, uh, on that note... 
we want to introduce the theme. And as soon as Emily is done giggling, she is going to do that since she knows more about this theme than I do. So, pardon me. Um, the theme this week is the great escape and we all have needed to escape or have escaped, uh, whether that is physically or by mentally dissociating from reality. Uh, you know, it's, it's necessary sometimes. Maybe we planned an escape, but it didn't come to fruition. Mm, foreshadowing. Yes, yes. That's another thing that we do here at Dream Infringement. We foreshadow. And uh, just to get your brains percolating on escape, what that means. You might think of certain pop culture figures who have framed, uh, framed the art of escaping, right? I think of Harry Houdini. Mm. I think of Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Okay? I think of Escape from Alcatraz, mm. the one with Clint Eastwood in it. That was a really good one. I never saw that one. Yeah. There was, uh, on Jurassic Park, there was the group of people who were escaping the clutches of the dinosaurs. Really, escape, the concept of escape, it is, we, it's, it is woven into the very fiber of human culture. We love escaping in, in, in so many different ways. And don't get me wrong, okay? Escaping is not the same as quitting. Let's talk about that just for a moment. Emily, what do you think the difference is between escaping and quitting? Um, hmm. <laughs> quitting, I think of quitting your job. Maybe you're no longer, like, filling that job. Maybe you're being treated poorly, so you quit. I, I'm quitting. I'm done with this. Okay? But escaping, escaping feels more like something that you are trying to, like, run from. Yeah, like you're running for your life. Like, if you don't get out, something bad is going to happen. Yeah. 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 And, and again, uh, quitting your job, maybe you are escaping something, right? But generally, quitting a, quitting a job is like a practical choice you have to make. Like, this job is not serving me well. Generally, you're not quitting, like, by the skin of your teeth. Like, I got to get out of here. This is scary business. Yeah, because usually with escape, you're you're leaving one thing for something better. Hopefully, in theory, yeah. it's better. Yeah. So yeah, shall we? Did you want to keep keep going or no? I think you want to play our intro song. I think I just wanted to get the listeners' ear juices percolating. Oh, good. So so now I feel like we've done that, and now let's introduce the first song of the lineup of a very carefully curated playlist that we have hand chosen for you the listeners for your enjoyment so the first song on that lineup is break free by queen and before we play it i think that we just all need to make bobby promise <laughs> never to say ear juices again all right here's queen break free Sure. When I walk out the door, oh, 
the idea for this theme came about from an incident involving my cat, Fio. Fio is kind of built like a little kitty linebacker, where they're simultaneously kind of hefty, yet also really strong. He's kind of a gunmetal gray color, very fluffy, with a little black nose. Usually he's quite the dapper gentleman. He's also a house cat. I don't think this is his preference, but he wasn't really given a choice in the matter. And there are many, many people in my neighborhood that allow their cats free reign over the streets. And they know. They know that they have outdoor privileges and that Fio is stuck inside like the little prisoner he is. So they like to swagger by the window and taunt my cat with their apparent freedoms. And my cat, he goes crazy. He runs back and forth from one window to the other just to catch a glimpse of his nemesis. He huffs and puffs at the window, this interloper, into his perceived territory that he cannot get at. There's one cat in particular, a little black and white one that loves taking little shortcuts through my yard, and it's very deliberate. So I often take Fio with me when I visit my parents, who live next door, but one night on the way back, as I had him slung over my shoulder like a sack of potatoes, I pulled the outside shade down, which terrified him. He went into cat panic, and with some scrabbling and and cat acrobatics. He jumped from my arms. He stood for a moment, just stunned. He knew <laughs> this was not the arrangement, and he did not want to waste it. He wanted to visit all the places that he'd seen from his window. He ran under bushes all up and down my yard, my parents' yard. He seemed to think that it was the grandest game. His floofy tail was held aloft as he dodged my attempts to capture him. He'd let me get closer, then dash off. He was having the greatest time. I was having a panic attack because my beloved cat, who is the same color as asphalt at dusk, right next to a main suburban road, could be bad very bad. And then, the next yard over, he saw it. That black and white cat, his nemesis. They were on equal footing now. There was no window separating them, and he ran full out towards the neighbor cat. The neighbor cat was really aware of street fighting etiquette. Like, there are steps. It's a little dance. First, you're supposed to stare, make your fur all bristly, arch your back, lick your lips, twitch your tail, then you begin the growl. And you kind of circle a little bit, trying to size up your opponent's weakness. You start to make those preliminary sounds of and after a sufficient amount of name calling and threats have been exchanged in this manner, you begin your cat scream. You advance upon your opponent, starting with some good old-fashioned boxing to warm up, and then a full-on 
wrestling, clawing, brawl. Like that's kind of the order of events, how they're supposed to go. It's just how it's done. The neighbor cat saw my cat advancing and it squared its little body and started to to hiss, started to arch its back. It was really beginning to get into the process. But my cat's not a street cat. He's a muffin, a house goblin, his royal floof of floofiness. He didn't know there was steps. He saw an opportunity and he took it. He did not do any of the preliminaries. The look on the neighbor cat's face was absolutely incredulous as 15 pounds of gray fury slammed into it, bowling it over in a somersault of fur and claws. Its hiss was cut short. It wasn't prepared for this, but it was wily. It had better cat reflexes, and it fled, clawing its way desperately over a nearby wooden fence, which my cat sat in front of in confusion because he doesn't know that you can or how to climb fences. And I was able to scoop him up in his distracted state. And even though he scared me and I was afraid of traffic or him getting lost, I really don't like that cat either. And it was so supremely enjoyable to recall its expression as my cat just clotheslined it flat. I was kind of like, bad Fio, escaping, good Fio, you got it, you got it. Neither cat was injured, so that was also a plus. <laughs> Every time I see that cat, I'm like, mm-hmm, don't saunter across my yard. I don't know, our neighborhood cats are also like spindly and scrawny, I believe, because Stan down the block chases them off and eats all their food. Stan is not scrawny, and I've seen him in the act of intimidating the younger cats and eating all their food. I mean, you can't really blame Stan for the the shakedown that he has got going on, because there is definitely a territorial pecking order. But that was the story of my cat's great escape, and he definitely would do it again if given the chance. So I'm going to play the song, Here Comes the Hot Stepper by Innie Kamozi, um, because sometimes I make up lyrics for my cat to the song, like, here comes the hot stepper, floofy pants, he's the house cat gangster, floofy pants, yeah, yeah, it goes over better when just a cat is your only audience. Uh, so here is, here comes the hot stepper. Here come the hot stepper, I'm the lyrical gangster, Murderer. big up the crew in the area, Murderer. still have it like that. No, no, we don't die, yes, we multiply. Hey there, Emily here with a story about 10-year-old me wanting to get away from it all. And Bobby also is here yeah i'm here too i'm here for like helpful commentary yeah it's helpful for me to have someone saying things like i'm telling a story in person to bobby 
Yeah. When you're 10, though, you just, you got to get away from it all. You got to get away from it all. Life is tough. It's true. We have an almost 10-year-old, and man. Yeah. Sometimes you just need a little <laughs> respite, a little break. Yeah. From the monotony of... Whatever. School. School. Homework. Cartoons. The daily grind. Yeah. So anyway, I was 10 years old, and... Um, we had some friends who lived in Gold Hill and they had a little house on, um, like with a little backyard and, but their, their fence faced like this huge field and then a hill, um, into some woods. And I think it was like a, it connected to like a, what is that called? Like a KOA campground. Is that what they're called? Never heard of this in my life. Okay. Well, maybe it's a different um, set of letters. But anyway, it was a, it was a campground. And uh, one evening, my family and their family had dinner at their house. And the the friends of mine, they were the same age as me. They happened to be twins. Interesting stuff, huh? Love a good set of twins. But not identical no no i've met these twins i yeah. can i can concur with that they are not identical twins but they are in fact twins yes so the three of us um decided to go exploring in the field and they said it was fine that the people that owned the field told them they could run around in the field anytime they wanted to and i don't know if that it was true but it seemed legit and their parents were okay with it, so I guess it must have been fine. But you know how kids are. They're like, oh, I can, anytime we want, we can go in this field. You know how they can be. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but uh, we so we went in the field, and we were playing around, and, and we were wandering, and then we wandered up towards the hill, and we were, like, hiking in the wooded area, and we decided that wouldn't it be cool if we packed bags and hid out in the woods for a while like the next time i came so not that time because we weren't prepared we didn't have snacks or anything with us not to mention you went there not prepared to spend the night in the woods <laughs> right exactly so i can't even imagine what you would have had in your bag since it wasn't your home <laughs> I had nothing. <laughs> I don't think I carried anything with me at 10 years old. Did they lend you a bag? Um, Do you have like a grocery bag? <laughs> <laughs> well, we weren't we weren't escaping at oh, that point. You were just planning the escape. We were just planning. We were like enjoying ourselves so much. And we were, oh, we had water bottles, I think. <sighs> and so we were like sitting down and taking breaks and like drinking our water. And I think the goal was to try to make it to the campground um, but we never made it that far because we were, like, imagining what it would be like to, like, run away and no one would know where we were and what kind of snacks we would bring. And I was like, I'll bring candy and <laughs> just imagining, like, what I would put in my backpack. And anyway, we really romanticized the whole thing. We were very excited. And so we hiked back down the hill back to their house and we made plans to meet up with each other the following weekend and you know and and make our great escape mm -hmm. and so um i think that was on a sunday and the monday 
I didn't tell my parents because that would, you know. Yeah, they definitely would have thrown a wrench in that plan. Totally. But I felt like my brother was a safe person to tell. And he was driving me to school that Monday morning. And I remember being on the way. And I didn't live very far from school. I was like a two-minute drive. So I must have conveyed enough in that two minutes and I was like, oh, he's going to think this is so cool. And so I was telling him about the plan. And I remember, like, before I got out of the car, he was like, Emily, this is a really bad idea. Really, please don't go do this. Don't run away. It would be really scary. And mom and dad would be really freaked out. And you you don't, it would be cold and you wouldn't, you don't want to do this. And I felt like, oh my goodness, you're right. I it didn't feel like, I feel like if a parent had told me, mm. it would have been like, oh, you guys just want me to play it safe. But since it was like my older brother, Your cool older brother. my cool older brother that told me like, please don't do this. Um, it really resonated with me. And I was like, okay, I won't do it. We won't do it. It brought you to your senses. It did. It brought me back to reality. But it also is funny to me that apparently I had it I seemed so enthusiastic and had it so well planned out that it seemed like <laughs> like a possibility. Like he was genuinely concerned that I would go through with it, which I don't think I would. I am not a risk taker. I never have been. I definitely get like I can romanticize things for sure. Yeah. But um, reality is never too far behind so yeah and and in my experience with like nine ten year olds right having been one having one at the moment for a son um a lot of times the thing that you're planning like the goal that you're planning on reaching whether it's like buying this really cool lego set right or running away from home to spend the night in the woods, you know, for a few nights. Like, most of the fun, I would say, like, I would say 100% of the fun, whether this thing happens or not, is just anticipating it for <laughs> yeah, a 9 or 10-year-old. It's just, like, planning it, talking about it, asking questions about it. If it's a Lego set, looking up pictures then like bouncing it back and forth with your parents like what if i got this what if i got that and i would imagine you with your twin friends like talking and planning this whole escape was probably like more fun than actually carrying it out oh absolutely i <laughs> if you know me i i don't do well uh without a bed like a real bed and a working toilet. And four walls and, and a roof. And four walls and a roof. So <laughs> I am not cut out for escaping into In central the woods. Heating. Yeah, and air conditioning mostly. Yeah. But yeah, I it wouldn't have it wouldn't have lasted. But yeah. Anyway, that was my my uh, great escape story. I love it. Thanks. Um, so the song I'm going to play is a song I like to listen to when I want to mentally escape from reality. And it's a song called Everybody's Talkin'. And I especially like this uh, version by Spanky and Our Gang because it sounds a little more like 70s psychedelic 
kind of dreamy to me. Um, so here it is. Everybody's Talking by Spanky and Our Gang. Everybody's talking at you. Don't hear a word they're saying. Only get Next, we're going to hear from our friend and contributor abroad. And compatriot. Don't forget compatriot. <laughs> Never forget. Uh, yes, it's it's Kirk. That's right, Kirk, hailing from the fabulous state of Washington. Here he is with a story about escape. Ape, 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 ape. September 20th, 1963. Richard Case Nagel walked into the El Paso State National Bank and requested $100 in traveler's checks from the teller. Then, he pulled out a pistol and shot twice into the air. Calmly, he walked outside and waited for the police. This was no ordinary bank robbery. Mr. Nagel appeared to be making a very deliberate effort to getting caught. In so doing, he was making his great escape. The location had been carefully chosen it was a federally insured bank, and since a gun had been discharged, FBI agents responded. On Nigel's person was the photocopy of another man's ID, a certain Lee H. Oswald. He hinted that police should inspect the trunk of his car, which carried papers and notebooks with names, places, and dates that would overlap with Oswald's records. However, this was two months prior to the assassination of President Kennedy. Nigel had been an experienced Army counterintelligence officer. He was the sole survivor of two plane crashes and did enough covert work for three-letter agencies for his resume to resemble alphabet soup. In monitoring a group of Cuban exiles plotting to kill Castro, he claimed to have stumbled across the plot to also kill President Kennedy. But Nigel had dwelled in the wilderness of mirrors for so long that he didn't know who his real masters were anymore. He believed that the KGB was manipulating him to eventually kill Oswald. He claimed to have sent written warnings about the Kennedy plot to the FBI and the CIA. And then he got himself locked up for robbing a bank so that he could not be embroiled in any of it anymore. Two months later, on November 22nd, when the president was shot, he had the ultimate alibi. He was in jail that day. On his release, he promptly disappeared, disappeared into Europe. Perhaps to this day, somewhere in a bank vault, forgotten in a safe deposit box or warehouse, there is a photograph described by Nigel of himself and Lee Harvey Oswald standing side by side in September of 1963 in Mexico City. Instead of serving as a life insurance policy, it became the exact opposite. Author Dick Russell spent years studying Nigel's story and interviewed him for his book, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Spurred on by popular interest in the Kennedy assassination, an independent government agency decided that it was finally time to talk to Mr. Nigel. On October 31st, 1995, the JFK Assassination Records Review Board sent him a request for documents in his possession. By the time the letter arrived, Richard Case Nigel 
had already made his greatest escape. He had left this life entirely. He was found dead in his apartment bathroom the next day, victim of an apparent heart attack. Whether this was a wild coincidence or a parting gift from one of his former employers remains to be seen. dangerous criminals to be in the dangerous criminal prison, yet I'm still fascinated by people who manage to find ways to escape these places specifically designed to not be escapable. And I have the story of one man who had really a gift for literally thinking outside the box, as in how to get out of the box or prison cell. And I don't want to glorify criminal behavior, but I think as a study in human nature, it's all very interesting. So this man is Stephen J. Russell. There's a movie about him, a book. He's been mentioned on podcasts, interviewed in magazines, so it's possible you might have heard of him. A reporter stated he looked quite unexceptional, that he was bald, broad-shouldered, and plump with stubby fingers. That is true, he seems very innocuous and unmemorable, which I think are probably things that helped him. And his origin story is a bit sad, Um, and I think it explains a lot of his future actions. In 1957, he was given up for adoption by his birth mother. She just divorced his biological father and did not want to raise a child out of wedlock. Russell later tracked her down, only to discover that she had remarried his father and given birth to three other children, full biological siblings. I felt rejected, is what he said. I had a little bit of a problem there when I found out. His adopted parents, Brenda and Thomas, were a conservative couple. Russell later married and had a daughter named Stephanie. And for much of the late 1970s, he was a very law-abiding citizen who played organ for the local church and volunteered as a deputy police officer. But in 1985, the death of his adoptive father triggered a personal crisis. He came to the conclusion that he had a stronger attraction to men, and he walked out on his wife and 12-year-old daughter, moved to Texas, and then later moved to L.A. His life of crime started at some point in the 1990s. He was fired from his job and was later arrested for fraud for faking a slip-and-fall accident, and he was sentenced to six months in prison. After serving just four weeks in prison, he decided to escape. Escape attempt number one. He disguised himself as a workman with a walkie-talkie and a pair of women's black trousers stolen from the prison infirmary. He says, I tapped on the security gate with my walkie-talkie and the guy let me through. So yes, he simply walked out of jail. Easy as you please. And he was found and rearrested. While in prison, he met Philip Morris, with whom he quickly fell in love. 
Morris was serving a sentence for failing to return a rental car, and both of them were released on parole in 1995. He wanted to give Morris a glamorous lifestyle and managed to get a job as the chief financial officer of a medical management company. He did this by greatly exaggerating his CV and all the references were directed back to him. Within five months, he had embezzled $800,000 from dormant accounts before the activity was detected and Russell and Morris were arrested. Escape number two. Sent back to jail, he was considered a flight risk and his bail was set at $950,000, but he called the Harris County Records Office pretending to be a judge and lowered his own bail from $950,000 to $45,000. He paid with a check that later bounced. He was arrested in a hotel room in Palm Beach, Florida the week afterwards. He then was sentenced to 45 years in prison for fraud and was sent to the maximum security Estelle unit in Huntsville, Texas. Escape 3. Russell came up with a new idea and he began collecting green highlighter markers and a spare prison uniform. He used his cell toilet to dye the uniform green to look like doctor scrubs. Underneath these makeshift medical clothes, he taped several plastic bags to his body so that police dogs would not be able to follow his scent once he was on the run. He picked a moment when the woman manning the front desk was on the telephone and then, unquestioned by prison staff, simply walked out dressed like a doctor. So once again, he walked out of prison. He hiked away from the prison to a house where he convinced a man to give him a ride into town. He then took a taxi to Houston and tracked down Philip Morris, who was on bail and awaiting trial for his involvement in the tax fraud case. He convinced Philip to run with him and the two fled to Mississippi, making money in casinos where Russell was later identified and arrested by a U.S. Marshal. So he was back in jail, but plotting another escape. Over a 10-month period in 1998, he began to feign the symptoms of AIDS. He ate almost nothing and took laxatives in order to look as emaciated as possible. He wrote up fraudulent health reports on the prison library typewriter and sent them to the relevant department in the internal mail system for inclusion in his medical file. He was so persuasive that the Texas authorities never ran their own tests and he was transferred to a nursing home. From there he posed as his own doctor over the telephone and received permission from parole officers to take part in a non-existent medical research study. A few weeks later the bogus doctor called the prison to let them know sadly Russell had died, which is a ploy they didn't fall for. While out on the run, he was also determined to get Morris out of prison, and he managed to make up an attorney's bar card, and he then called the Estelle unit where Morris was serving his time. He posed as a judge and issued a bench warrant to have Morris moved to a Dallas prison so he could visit him disguised as his attorney without being recognized. Later in 1998, he posed as a millionaire from Virginia in an attempt to legitimize a $75,000 loan from Nation Bank. 
When bank officials became suspicious and alerted the police, he feigned a heart attack and was transported to a hospital. He was placed on security watch, but he impersonated an FBI agent and called the hospital on his cell phone to tell them that he could be released. U.S. Marshals once again tracked him down in Florida, where they arrested him. He was then sentenced to a total of 144 years in prison, 99 years for the escapes and 45 years for all the scams. He went from six months to 144 years. He would say, I did those things because I wanted to be with Philip. I was out of control. And therein lay his fatal flaw. Despite managing repeatedly to outwit the federal authorities, he was always caught each time he escaped, because he went straight back to Morris. You found Philip Morris. You found Russell. He's been on solitary confinement for a very long time, which is hard on many people. Some react to the lack of human contact by feeling unloved and unworthy of love, it can lead into a downward spiral into depression. But he would state, in my case, the lack of physical human contact is almost a blessing, since it was always my obsession with lovers that got me into trouble. My need to take care of them and be with them was the motivation behind all four of my escapes. Going cold turkey has let me quit that self-destructive behavior. Somehow the greatest escape, it seems, was an escape from himself. Being in prison, it freed him from those circumstances, from those obsessive tendencies. When I reflect on his entire story, it makes me sad. When I reflect on his story, it makes me feel sad. Kind of in a waste of potential way. Obviously, parts of his mind and his intellect is absolutely brilliant. And yet all this drive and energy is so focused on things that are ultimately destructive and takes him farther and farther away from his goal. It's said that he and Philip Morris are no longer in contact with each other, but there's a fair amount of people who simply do not believe that. Given his track record, I think I probably will side with those people. I decided on the song, I Would Do Anything For Love by Meatloaf, because I think this guy probably would do anything for love. Something that can kind of happen when you don't, you know, really set a lot of personal boundaries and yeah, I don't know if he has a prison therapist, but I'm sure they've got a lot to cover still. So here we go. Hi there, it's Bobby. I wish I could say that my story of escape was because of danger. Danger was knocking at my door. And I wish I could say that I escaped because I was running from the law. I even wish I could say I escaped for a noble reason. But that's not why I escaped. I escaped because of inconvenience. I was 16. 
and I had all of the shiny upstanding qualities that came along with being my particular brand of 16. I was easily spooked, awkward, impatient, and not to mention, I looked out for numero uno. That's right, yours truly, me. At the time, there was this young guy who had come into my community and my dad, as he liked to do, took him under his wing. And this was because this young man, he was he was just a few years older than I was. He, um, he had a difficult family life, um, and I think that he was kind of like moved from another part of the state that I was living in at the time to the city that I was living in. He, he was moved. Um, because of like familial issues like his parents and stuff like that um, it was a uh, personal you know personal complicated stuff and he was you know now kind of in my bubble uh, my dad would kind of like entertain conversations with him which meant that there was kind of this open door policy where he could come and like drop in at any given time and visit now the thing about this guy okay is that when he started talking to you there was no getting away from him he was going to talk to you until he was done and being the awkward impatient 16 year old that i was I had a very hard time just getting out of the conversation. I had a hard time breaking away, escaping, right? So as a result, I would just stand there and listen to him talking to me, going on and on and on about things that were inconsequential, nothing heavy, nothing personal, nothing emotional, just information facts things and if you know anything about me conversations that involve facts and things and stuff and locations that's going to just about kill me if I have to be in a conversation that is you know more than just exchanging pleasantries uh, you know just short spurts of small talk I can handle that but prolonged not going to be able to handle handle it. So this young guy, this day, this particular day, he shows up at my house, okay? And I only know this because my room is separate from the main dwelling, which is where all of my sisters and my brother live and my mom and my dad. It also is the only place that contains a working bathroom, okay? But my room is essentially four walls and a roof that is separate from the house. It was a garage that was converted into a bedroom, barely a bedroom. It just contained a bed and a television set. So it had electricity, which for a teenager, that's all I needed. But I could hear the faint sound of his droning on and on and on okay and I cared about the guy I liked him I thought he was a you know generally a pleasant person 
but like the never ending conversations that that he would you know like arrest me into uh, that was something that I just I I couldn't I couldn't be involved in at seven thirty in the morning, which is when it struck me that I had to go to the bathroom. So the only way in the only way to get into the house in a in you know in a normal way would have been to leave my dwelling and to walk to the front door of the main dwelling of the main house which would mean me passing by this young guy and in my condition having to go to the bathroom being basically half asleep i just i couldn't i couldn't handle the prospect of of getting stuck into a vortex of a boring conversation so what did i do well i used my cunning to figure out a way to avoid him seeing me and in turn avoid getting stuck into a boring long conversation so i walked out my back door i walked through the desert because i grew up in southern arizona there was a lot of like dirt and dust and bushes that i had to kind of traverse through i walked into the backyard of my house and I tried opening every single window on the backside of the house. It just so happened that one of the windows was open slightly. So I slid that open, that window open ever so carefully so as not to alert the rest of the house. I started to climb into the window, thinking only of myself, mind you. Again, 16-year-old looking out for numero uno as i as i swung one leg into the open window frame and slowly teetered my head through the curtains okay the drapes are now covering my head and i'm slowly walking climbing through this window it dawns on me that this window belongs to the bedroom of my middle sister, who is 14 years old. Now, I don't really know how my middle sister will react to the prospect of someone climbing in through her window that she does not know and is not expecting. Okay, so as I'm climbing through the window, this dawns on me. It also dawns on me that Maybe, just maybe, she's the kind of person who will be startled by someone climbing in through her window that she is not ex expecting, that she does not know, that she will grab a bat or something blunt and she will hit me on the head. And this crosses my mind, my 16-year-old mind, for but a moment. Finally, the drapes are pulled from before my face and my identity is revealed. And when I stand upright... I face the door of my sister's room to find that my middle sister is frozen, in shock. She's as white as a sheet and without words. I tell her that the young guy who likes to involve us in his conversations to no end, he's standing on our front porch and I merely climbed in through her window to escape, to escape his verbal clutches.
although she is scared beyond measure, she also understands the fear that drove me to do something so radical, something that had shown no forethought whatsoever. She understood this. And I'd like to think that that day we both learned something about ourselves. That in the face of danger, like actual danger, my sister will do nothing. She will just stand there and freeze. And in the face of moderate discomfort, I will do anything I can to escape it. I will fight tooth and nail to avoid that discomfort. So that is my story of escape. Now I am going to play a song by a, an artist that I was listening to pretty heavily at the time that I climbed into my sister's window. And that artist, his name is Ben Queller. And the song, I think, pretty accurately describes like who I was at that time. Um, a lot of the same things that are going on in the song, um, pretty, pretty parallel to what was going on with me when I was 16 years old. So here is Ben Queller with How It Should Be. Like, so to me, it's up to me if I decide to be what I think is right. Wow, Bobby, thanks for that great story. Hey, thank you. And I also want to thank all of our contributors and just everybody who just pulled it all together to make a wonderful a wonderful escape theme. Well, we had one contributor. Yeah. It was Kirk. But we're all kind of contributing together. It's true. We all contribute to this melange of auditory delight. Yes, and now it is time for us to make our to make our escape, and that's not because we're afraid. Uh, it's not because we're uh, in need of a change of pace, right? Right. It's because if we don't escape, then the next show will not be able to happen. So I wouldn't call what we're doing an escape. At the beginning of the show, we dissected what escape meant. Oh, yeah. So now and it was to move on to something better. And we're not moving on to something better. No way. This is the best. We escape whatever is happening in the real world to do this. This is our escape. Wow. That's so meta. Anyways, we're glad you joined us. And we care about you so much because you're our listeners and you're the lifeblood. You are the lifeblood of this show, Dream Infringement. So thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more KSKQ goodness. And until next Monday, adios. Bye. We love you, Miriam. We're going to play you out with what some would say the greatest escape song of all. And that song is... Escape by Rupert Holmes. If you don't recognize that title, also known as the Pina Colada song. If you have half a brain.